I, I, when I hit print on my notes last night, I think I had my copy copier set at like 10 or something. I don't know. So I, I have extra copies if people would like to share. <laughs> um, but I don't think I have enough for everybody. But does anybody want, want this to look at? Some of the notes will make no sense. Like one of my notes says, uh, talk about this. So that's not going to help you. But... <laughs> <laughs> sure. I, I do have some here. If you, anybody, here you are. I'll hand them out till I pass out. Pass out of them. Here you are. There you go. Fontaine. Liz, you'll share with them for now. Oh, they don't need any. Okay, oh, well, bottom of the, here you are, sorry. Um, I'm happy, I, I should make copies of these kind of things. I'm happy to send out, um, uh, if you want a copy of this, send me an email, I'll shoot it to you. All right, we, we got chairs for everybody? Right, we're in John's Gospel. Let me, let me begin this with prayer. I'm, I'm really excited. Well, I'll, I'll share. I'll try. Let me pray. Um, Lord, thank you for bringing us together on this uh, this Lord's Day. And Lord, thank you for getting us all here through the maze of downtown. And forgive us for our profanity. <laughs> and, um, and Lord, I pray that you'll bless our time together and here as we begin a new series together in the Gospel of John. I'm I'm grateful, Lord, that you give us opportunities to think through and pray through your word together in a, in a setting, in a communal, churchly setting like this. It is, it is a good gift. And I ask that you open our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us from, from this gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, um, let me say a few things before we dive in. Um, number one, I... I I pay the bills by teaching the Old Testament. Um, you know, that's how the mortgage gets paid, and it's primarily Hebrew-based, um, which, you know, tends to thin out the class numbers, to be frank, you know. Uh, but um, uh, I actually, you know, my, at Beeson this semester, I'm, I'm teaching an Old Testament theology class and a biblical theology class. This is the first time in my 11 years of Beeson that I'm not teaching Hebrew, and I kind of actually like it, to be honest with you. Um, but I, 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 they, let me, they, they let me fiddle with Moses and, and Isaiah and Jeremiah at Beeson, but they, they don't really let me get my hands too close to Jesus, you know, like New Testament stuff. Like <laughs> the people. Uh, there's actually some truth, not, there's not truth to that at Beeson, but there's some truth to that in the history of critical scholarship in Germany. Uh, this is, kind of shows a little bit of the... Um, anti-Old Testament slash anti-Semitism that was a part of the, the German university system in the 19th century. A, a fellow named Hermann Gunkel, who's a significant Old Testament scholar, perhaps the most significant Old Testament scholar at the turn of the century, 1900s into the 1800s into the 1900s. Um, Hermann Gunkel started off as a New Testament scholar, um, and he, he fiddled around too much with the New Testament. And they told him at the University of Halle, which was a historically pietistic university, uh, sorry, you're going to have to go to the um, Old Testament faculty. <laughs> In other words, you can mess with Moses 
all you want to critically, but don't mess with Jesus. You can't do that, right? Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for a class like this to be able to dive into the New Testament a bit with you all. I should say, and I, I, I can't guarantee that this will always work out in this particular fashion, but to my, the way my mind operates with my teaching schedule at the Advent, I've said this before, but it's worth repeating, I tend to do something in the Old Testament proper in the fall, Uh, During the season of Advent, I tend to do something a little bit more theologically oriented. And then in the spring, I tend to do something in the New Testament. That's kind of been my modus operandi. If you think there's any uh, uh, reason or rhyme to the madness, that's that's the the rhyme. Now, John's Gospel. Um, I think we'll have seven weeks together. I'm going to do John 1 through 12 in, in, in a very interesting and, I think, gracious providence I'm Doug Webster, who's the new teaching pastor here at um, the Advent and a colleague of mine at Beeson. And I hope you all get to know Doug and Virginia. They're they're wonderful people. It's a blessing to have them here. Um, But Doug will be teaching John 13 to to the end of John's Gospel um, uh, in a couple of weeks as well. So it's kind of nice to have these things on parallel tracks. So I'm staying at the beginning of the Gospel. He'll go toward the end of the Gospel. Um, And what, what do we say about John's Gospel? Today's lesson is completely introductory in nature. I want to kind of give you a sense of John's Gospel, what's going on with John, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about it. Um, John's Gospel um, is different than the other three. You know, this is something that I think we all feel when we read the fourfold Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, I don't know if you've thought about the significance of the fourfold character of the Gospel, but I... I think there's something rather profound about the relationship between the fourfold character of the Gospels and Jesus Christ, which creates, I'll put this in scare quotes, but which creates problems that, depending on your sensibility, various people try to get at that problem in different ways. In other words, when we get into Lent, which is now, and then, let's say, closer to Easter, and you flip on the Discovery Channel, or the History Channel, or CNN, I mean, this is Jesus' documentary season, right? You're going to get some documentary Jesus. And then you get the talking heads, the talking scholars, and the way in which the talking scholars tend to go about the discussion is, well, who was the real Jesus? Or who was the historical Jesus? Because you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but those have obviously been sort of baptized in early Christian thought. And their historical value and veracity, well, that, you know, they can be, have some sort of historical uh, uh, um, role to play, but we've got to turn to other places like, uh, and the list goes on, right? Tatian or Josephus or other kinds of accounts to get some sense about who the real Jesus was because the narratives of the Gospels are an impediment toward that. The the way in which that was traditionally described is the Jesus of history versus the Christ of faith. A really good book was written on that, by the way, by a philosopher who teaches at Baylor now. I think, I don't remember where he was at the time. Um, But the title of the book is The Jesus of Faith and the Christ of History. He fiddled with that. I thought it was well played, actually. Um, so, So what do we do with this, right? I mean, what do we do with the fact that you have a fourfold gospel account by the way, this was not mine. I wasn't planning on talking about this. But you have a fourfold gospel account, and how do they relate to Jesus? This is a problem, and again, I use the term scare quotes with this. This is a problem that has been before the, early, before the church since its inception. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, from a historical perspective, and this is another little fun tidbit of information, but from a historical perspective, the development of the medium of a book. Remember, we're moving from scrolls, right, open a long scroll, to the book form or the codices. That's happening around the end of the first century world, A.D. And some argue, scholars argue, that the the impetus, the genesis, the, the, cause, the cause that led toward thinking about book form versus scroll form was the fact that the fourfold gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, needed to travel together very early. That's something, isn't it? So there's a sense in which the, the rise of the book form itself is in some sense related to the necessity in the early church to see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of a piece with each other. The fourfold Gospels related to the singular Gospel, right, as revealed in Jesus. And this is where I think the early church comes in to be very helpful. Because the early church will say, and I think rightly so, the relationship between the fourfold Gospels and the real Jesus is that all of them have a unique and important perspective, but neither of them is, are, is exhaustive, right? So they're all important, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but neither of them are exhaustive when it comes to an account of who Jesus is. I need Matthew in conversation with Mark, in conversation with Luke, in conversation with John, to see this multi-perspectival view on this singular event, God's revelation of himself in Jesus. Which is profound, isn't it? We would expect that to be the case. Origen in the early church, I mean, he would wax eloquent about the significance of the fact that we have four Gospels. Why? Well, because Jesus is too multidimensional to be reduced to one account. And there's been various attempts to get at singular accounts, right? Now, through acts of harmonization or other acts, even the quest for the historical Jesus, we want a singular account rather than recognizing that the multi-perspectival account is in God's providence, canonically conceived, the ways in which the Gospel comes to us. So, so I, maybe this is a good illustration for you. I use this with my students, and I think it's helpful. I, I, I borrowed this from Herman Bovink, a Dutch theologian. But Bovink describes the relationship between, say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to the historical Jesus as real. There's a real relationship there, right? There's a correspondence to reality that's taking place there. But it's doing so in an interpretive way. Um, so you art buffs out here, right? This is a move from realistic painting to impressionistic painting. Uh, this is the illustration that Bobbing gives, and I think it's a very helpful one. Um, I, do you like the impressionist painters? I mean, I have to admit, you know, when I go to, when I go to an art gallery, which hasn't been in a while, frankly, I'm getting a little philistine. Uh, children do that to you. Um, but whenever you know, go to an art gallery, when we, li- when my wife and I lived in um, Scotland. Uh, the National Gallery in Edinburgh was right down the road, about an hour down the road, and it's, it was quite a collection. Um, and I would always just sort of humdrum through the Renaissance period and, and then I, the Baroque period, and, but I knew where I really wanted to go. Like, I, let's, get, let's get to the Impressionistic Hall. I love it. I go gone and you know, my wife knows Matisse and um, Van Gogh. I kind of had a very, an interest in Van Gogh because he was wacko. Um, <clears throat> you know, and in part, his wacko-ness derived from the fact that he was rejected out of, out of, out of seminary. They, they kicked him out of seminary because he was too radical. I mean, Van Gogh's a fascinating story. Um, but, but Van Gogh's... And you go and you see these. Now, it's one thing to see Starry Night, right? 
uh, and a reproduction that's on, you know, your, you know, your bathroom wall with a quote under it about how beautiful heaven is or something. Um, it's another thing to see these paintings up close and all of a sudden you begin to realize, well, but that sort of impasto character, paint is built on top of paint. And sometimes there's just bare canvas. Have you ever noticed? Like, this, like you missed a few spots there, right? Um, why? Well, because the nature of impressionistic painting is to have a correspondence to reality, but in an interpretive way. It's an interpretation of reality. It doesn't mean it's divorced from reality, but it's an interpretation of that. Uh, when, you'll remember this, Naomi, but when, when we were in Scotland, they had a traveling exhibit of Monet's French seascape period, is that right? But it's some period in Monet's painting, and you walked into this gallery uh, set aside in, in the, there in Edinburgh, and it was, just, it was incredible. But you would see, for example, this same rock formation on the French coast, and there would be seven different paintings of it. Because one was done in the winter, one was done in the spring, one was done at the morning with the light coming from one direction, one was done at evening with the light coming from another direction, or you have the, you know, his famous uh, hay bales with snow on top of them. One's yellow, one's pink. One. Why? It's, it's an interpretation. It doesn't mean that they don't correspond to reality, but it's an interpreted uh, correspondence to reality. And that's what we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They relate to one another in such a way that they're giving us necessary interpretive vantage points to come to terms with this overwhelming reality that is Jesus of Nazareth. And I need Matthew's voice, and I need Mark's voice, and I need Luke and John's voice to help me think through how God has revealed himself in Jesus of Nazareth, right? The Word become flesh. Now, with that said, one other thing I want to say here, and it's about the, the fourfold gospel. If you read enough in um, New Testament scholarship, I mean, you, I mean, Barnes and Noble Isle. I mean, we're not talking about high flying stuff here. You go down Barnes and Noble in the Christian section, and you come to, to some commentary on Luke, you will find more often than not, Bible scholars tend to talk about Luke as Luke Acts. Have you heard that before? Luke Acts, Luke Acts, Luke Acts. Why? Well, Luke is the first volume. Uh, and then, and this is true, by the way. Luke is a kind of a first volume written by Luke, the doc, Dr. Luke. And then you have Acts, which is kind of a second volume, a continuation of the story. And you can actually see thematic elements that tip and tuck between Luke and Acts all the way through. It's, it's a, it's a, it can be very helpful from an interpretive standpoint. So you'll often uh, hear Luke talked about as if it's necessarily related to Acts in a singular interpretive frame. Well, here's what's fascinating, right? To me, no one in the early church thought of Luke and Acts in that way. No one. It doesn't mean, didn't mean that they didn't know, by the way, that Luke was the author of both and that the two are related to one another, but there's no such thing for Irenaeus or Athanasius or Origen or Augustine. There's no such thing as Luke-Acts. Why? Well, because the canon and the ways in which these books have been received have shaped their approach to being interpreted. Luke is always a part of the fourfold gospel. John is always between Luke and Acts in such a way that Luke functions more properly, can you say that, uh, in the interpretive framework of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John rather than as a singular piece, Luke-Acts. Okay, now that's a separate thing. So, what about John's gospel? Well, John has always been the weird bear, Right? Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're, they're referred to as the synoptic gospels. 
um, because they tend to share a similar plot and a similar narrative, even if some aspects are highlighted more than others. But there seems to be a kind of narrative flow in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that one can trace from the beginning of Jesus' birth and ministry as it then culminates in time to his death and his resurrection. And when you get to the death and the resurrection, now it begins to dawn on you in the narrative movement of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, oh, this is Jesus, the Son of God. Right. So the narratives themselves unfold in such a way as to reveal something about Jesus that was not necessarily revealed in its fullness beforehand. Now, you find this in Mark's Gospel. Some scholars call it the Messianic secret. But Jesus in the the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's often telling people, hey, by the way, don't tell anybody about that. Remember, you know Jesus does that? He just raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. She's alive, drinking soup, right? And what does he say? Hey, by the way, let's just keep this between us, right? He heals that blind man. He tells the blind man, hey, just let's keep this between us, right? Don't tell anybody. And then, of course, he goes and he tells everybody, and that's one of my favorite scenes in all the Gospels, by the way. This poor blind guy, obviously poor and illiterate, gets yanked before the Pharisees, and they say, did he heal you? Do you claim that he's the Son of God? You can just see this guy's, I mean, it's almost a court jester kind of scene. And the guy says, I don't know who he is. But I know that yesterday I couldn't see, and today I can't. Right. You guys, you're the teacher. You figured it out. But I, I, used, I couldn't see. Now I can't. Right. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, even though they differ from one another, they share a similar kind of narrative unfolding. John's gospel is different. John's gospel assumes the totality of Jesus' person revealed from beginning to the end. The end, the goal of his death and his resurrection, but not just his death and his resurrection, also the spawning of a mission by his disciples that then goes into the whole world, right? That's all tied into the presentation of who Jesus is from the beginning. So John gives us a holistic view of Jesus in his ministry here on earth. This is the Word become flesh. This is God enfleshed in time and space who's bringing the fullness of revelation about who God is and what God's plan is to redeem the world that's gone off axis. And we don't have to wait to the end of the narrative to go, oh my, that's right, this, like the centurion, surely this was the Son of God. No, we know from the beginning, from the revelation at the wedding of Cana, all the way through his sign ministry, into his pre-passion speeches, into the passion itself, we have a sense of the weightiness of this particular figure. This is the Word become flesh. So there's a, there's a holistic view in John's Gospel related to, um, to who Jesus is. Number two, if you're following the outline, or at least I am, the spirit of truth and of scripture. Right? The spirit of truth and of scripture. In John chapter 14 and John chapter 15, the spirit of truth was promised as a post-resurrection hope. Right? Um, and we won't get into that in this class, because frankly, I don't know if we're going to get out of John 3, to be honest with you. Um, but we're certainly not going to get to this part in the class. Um, but, you know, the farewell discourse, John chapter 15, John chapter 16... I don't know if you've read that, but there are some statements in there that are frankly unnerving. I mean, Jesus says, I'm going to give you the spirit of truth, 
And when the Spirit of truth comes, you will do greater works than these. Have you ever read that? Jesus is saying to his disciples, you'll do greater works than I have done. This is the guy, by the way, a few chapters back, who just raised Lazarus from the dead. This was the guy that turned water into wine and walked on water and fed 5,000 people. But he's saying when the spirit of truth comes and empowers you for your apostolic mission, and that mission which then spreads throughout the world, you will do greater works than these, probably speaking about the scope of the ministry that the disciples would have on the far side of Jesus' death and resurrection. Right. So he promises that the spirit will come, and it's going to be a spirit of truth. But there's also a sense in which the Gospel of John, the Scriptures are understood as the primary means by which the Spirit will lead disciples into all truth. Who is Jesus? What's the significance of what Jesus has done in the world? What's the significance of Jesus' death, which really threw us off guard, by the way, and his now resurrection, and, maybe even more problematically, his ascension. He's not here anymore. He's gone. What's the significance of these realities, these verities that have come to us in the person and work of Jesus? How do we, how do we calculate and how do we form a grammar, a language, to talk about what we have experienced and encountered in this singular figure? And the answer that John's Gospel, along with the rest of the Gospels as well, Put straightforward is, when you want to figure out and find a grammar and a speech to talk about Jesus and the significance of his person and work, I've given you the scriptures to do that. The scriptures will lead you into all truth as you want to figure out how to talk and think and reflect and worship me. John chapter 5, verse 39, I'll read this to you. Jesus says, and he's having a little interlocution here with some of the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. I mean, that's a, that's a claim about the material content of the Bible. Now, of course, Jesus is here speaking primarily about the Hebrew scriptures about the Old Testament. The Old Testament bears witness to me. So there's a promise in the Scriptures, in John's Gospel, that the Spirit will come, and that the Scriptures are a given verity in the life of the church, and the two necessarily relate to one another in the life of the church as we think, and as we pray, and as we wrestle with who Jesus is. That's the big question. It's the question that John's Gospel raises, and it's the question that we continue in the life of the church to grapple with as well. Who is Jesus? And what's the significance of Jesus in the life of the church, and bigger than that, in the life of the known world? How, how, how broad is the scope of Jesus' person and work? They testify about, about me, the Scriptures. Now, you know there's that other claim in the, in the, in the Gospels where um, someone says something like, hey, if you bring... Um, uh, raise my brothers up from the dead or let me come up, maybe my brothers will believe. Wasn't that the, the rich man that was there? And what did, what did Jesus say? If they don't believe the law and the prophets, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, which they already have, then, then, they, then this won't get them either. That's quite a claim about the formal and material sufficiency of the Bible and the life of the church. 
The scriptures bear witness and they testify to me. The necessity of word and spirit. Let me say something about this because I'm, I'm rather reformed in my thinking on these matters, okay? Um, Calvin and, and the Calvinist tradition, the Reformation tradition, Luther would, would be of a piece in this as well, would affirm the necessity and the relationship, the interrelationship, the inseparability of the Holy Spirit and the Bible. The scriptures and the spirit. Um, I don't get the scriptures without the spirit, and I don't get the spirit without the scriptures. They are necessarily related and conjoined one uh, to another. Matter of fact, and this might sound borderline heretical to some of you, but I'll just go ahead and say it. In fact, the Bible, apart from the operative work of the Holy Spirit, is black words on a white page. It doesn't have material efficacy in and of itself left to itself. The Bible has its efficacy because God, in his providential movement toward humanity, has said, those words are mine. They come from me, and I will sustain them, and I will preserve them, and I will use them to speak my word into the hearts and minds of my people. So the Bible's efficacy is related to the work of the Spirit. And I would say at the same time as well, that the work of the Spirit is related organically inextricably to um, the words of Scripture as well, right? Um, so this isn't to downplay the fact that God can do crazy things in the revelation of himself in time and space. I, I'm not... Oh, I didn't plan to talk about this. I, I'm not a cessationist when it comes to the spiritual gifts. I don't know how they always work out, but some crazy things happen. I've mentioned to you this in other contexts, so forgive me for saying it again, but I heard a Southern Baptist leader of a missionary board. So we're talking about a conservative entity that, by the way, now the Southern Baptist Convention, as I understand it, has come out firmly against charismatic gifts in their missionary movement. Okay, so they're speaking in tongues and all that. Eh, don't do it. So this was a Southern Baptist missionary in a pretty prestigious position at an unnamed Southern Baptist institution in Louisville. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Um, <laughs> who, who said in a meeting that he'd worked with Muslims for 20 years and had not met one convert from Islam to Christianity that had not been converted because, or at least on, at some point in the conversion narrative, Jesus didn't appear to that person in a dream. <laughs> We're all like, uh-huh, right? Now, if you come to me tomorrow and you say you saw Jesus appear in the window while you were shaving, you know, I was like, well, that's, that's fascinating. You know, I don't know what to make of that, right? Um, but in these extreme situations, on the front lines like that, in a place in, in, in Islam, I, mean, I have no doubt about it. But God's ordinary means, okay? And I don't think we need to think of that in, in some sort of um, attenuated sense, like ordinary means not that interesting or not that exciting. What I mean by that is the ordinary, normal way by which God reveals himself to humanity is in the Word of God. It's in the scriptures. Because we hear those kind of crazy stories about people having dreams, and I believe those. But I've also heard stories, maybe you have too. I know a New Testament scholar that teaches at Southeastern Seminary in Waco, uh, not Waco, in um, Wake Forest. Uh, uh, is that where they are? Greensboro. Greensboro. Um, this, and he's a pretty well-known New Testament scholar from Germany. He grew up an atheist, and then he didn't believe in God. He was on his way to work on a train in Germany. Someone had left one of those little red Gospel of Johns on the train. And he's converted. That's his narrative. And by the way, he's written multiple commentaries in, on John's gospel. All right. So, I mean, I, the scriptures are powerful. But the point here is, 
John's gospel is bearing witness to something about the interrelatedness of the promise of the Holy Spirit and the givenness of the scriptures as the means by which the Spirit will communicate himself to us. What does that mean for you and for me? What that means for us is attendance to, wrestling with, reading, agonizing, struggling with the Bible is at the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's at the core. It's at the center of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We wrestle with His Word and what that Word is saying to us as we think through how our lives and our prayers and our worship is ordered. How we order that. How we order our desires. Those are linked to one another. All right, let's move on. Number three. The interplay in John's Gospel is between uh, the historical and the theological. Okay? There's an interplay between history and theology. Now, there's an importance in John's Gospel of the visual aspect of seeing. Can I read to you John chapter 1, verse 14? And the Word uh, became flesh. We're going to talk about this more next week. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Some of you have done studies in John's Gospel before, and you know that that Greek term there is, could be properly translated, and he tabernacled among us. This is the, the imagery that's being used here is tabernacle imagery. And you remember how the tabernacle was a moving element in the, narratives, in the wilderness narratives, that the tabernacle would move, the tent of meeting would move, along with God's presence. And the presence was manifested in the Shekinah, right? The Shekinah either of the cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night. That's God's manifested presence there. So we see His glory. And now what we see, and again this is the import of the Old Testament for coming to terms with what John is claiming here, when John says, and the Word became flesh, boy, monographs and books are written on that phrase. The Word became flesh. And the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, became and took on that which he did not have. I mean, this gets into dicey theological territory. I mean, you can crash on rocks on all sides here, right? There was never a time when the second person of the Trinity did not exist as fully God in relationship to the Father by the Spirit. Never, right? We believe that. And you confess it whether we understand the full implications of this, but that's what we confess every week when we do the Gloria. Glory to the Father and to the Son, as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever, world without end. Amen. That's the Athanasian fight song of the 4th century. Take that Arius in the knee. Ra, ra, re. Right? That's what it is. So that's a fight song there. Um, it's a claim about the eternal uh, generation of the Son by the Father in the life of the Spirit. It's a beautiful claim about the Trinitarian character of God as... as as essential to God's identity and being forever. But there was a time, from a historical perspective, and a temporal perspective, our lived experiential perspective, when the second person in the Trinity was not a man. Right? He, he wasn't always a man. This is the stuff that makes theologians and philosophers want to you know, say, you know, go to Tahiti and just retire. Right? <laughs> I mean, the word eterno, eternity immutable, unchanging God, right, takes on something that he did not have before. Flesh. And he did so in such a way as not to in any way limit 
his full identity as the word beforehand that he was and will always be. Lutherans and Reformed people debate about this stuff to the day, to this day. And I love it. I find it fascinating. We're not going to get into that now. But the Word became flesh. And what did He do when He became flesh? He took on flesh, and now He's tabernacling among us. Just like the Shekinah glory followed the people of God in the wilderness, now we see the full Shekinah of glory of God revealed in the humanity of the Son. He's the tabernacle in our midst, and we see Him. So there's an, there's an import raised in John's Gospel of the sensory experience of seeing but there's another aspect as well. Equally important is the theological insight or revelation for coming to terms with what it is that we actually saw. So let, let me say that again. Import in John's Gospel of seeing. But equally so, there's an emphasis in John's Gospel on the significance and the necessity of revelation, of insight of something given outside of our own experience to help us make sense of that which we saw. Uh, John chapter 5, 4, verse 42 said, we came to know that He is the Savior of the world. And as we had something, we, we, we had a deficit in our knowledge. We needed unveiling, unpacking, teaching, revelation, the work of the Spirit, so that what we saw before us we could then make sense of it in, in, in lieu of what it actually is in its essence and being. That's very significant here. Okay, can, let, let me back up and, and just talk about this for a second. Because I, I find this to be, from an interpretive standpoint, very important. Maybe you feel this way, right? Now, I hope, let's be, I'm going to be careful. Um, modernity has given us a lie. And the lie, from an intellectual standpoint, is... The closer that you can get to a historical reality, the closer you are to its truth and understanding it. Can I say that again? The closer you can get to a historical reality, the closer that you can get to understanding and knowing it. A fancy way of saying that is, proximity to historical reality becomes the guarantor of truth. If I can get closer to historical reality, and that, that's part of the quest, by the way, for the historical Jesus. I've got to get past all, this, all this, these layers of tradition in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John so that I can get to Jesus as he really was because if I can get there, now I'm closer to the truth as it really was. And I see this in Old Testament studies left and right. If I can just get past Isaiah, all the layers of tradition in Isaiah, get past all of that, now I can find the 8th century prophet and maybe feel his breath on my neck. Right? That kind of thing. There's a romantic instinct here to get toward things in their historical... But you know, something about the Gospels that I think we read is that that's actually not true. In fact, I don't know if you felt this way, but sometimes people who were the closest to Jesus and were actually there, eating falafel with Him in shawarma, right? Breaking pita bread. They're like, we can't believe this. Or they would see incredible things and go on as if it didn't happen. As if they just didn't have the mental dexterity to make sense of what had just occurred. Wow, you just did that. Okay, let's, you know, and many did not follow him anymore that day. That's what you have in John's Gospel. So there's no claim, I think, within, by the way, reality itself, historical studies, or our understanding of Jesus as Nazareth to say, if we could have just been there and seen it with our own eyes, then we would believe. No, no, no. There's the necessary conjoining in John's gospel between seeing and revelation itself. 
I need the revelation of God to unlock my hard heart and my closed off will so that I can see who His glory, and not only see His glory, but understand that that glory is the revelation of God's love for humanity, which has something to do with me. I need revelation to do that. And by the way, I need revelation to to help me make sense of the historical realities themselves. Let me me give you, I'll give you an example of this from the standpoint of Jesus' death and resurrection. Okay, and then we'll we'll be done. I've got a lot more I want to do, but we'll be done. Um, If I wanted to prove, from a modernist standpoint, historically speaking, that Jesus of Nazareth existed as a political rebel and died on a Roman cross similar to, say, Spartacus, right? I love that movie. My father used to make me watch it, and I love it, right? Um, Kirk Douglas, I am Spartacus, right? That's a true story. It happened in the first century B.C. Uh, The uh, the slave revolt almost won. Isn't that incredible? This slave revolt almost took over Rome. It was so frightening to the aristocracy in Rome that once they actually defeated Spartacus and his army, they crucified every one of those slaves on the, on the Apian Way all the way from Rome out into the countryside so that everyone came in, coming into Rome at that time would have to see some slave on a cross dying so that they knew, hey, by the way, you want to try that? This is going to happen to you too. I mean, it's a powerful story. So, I mean, this, the whole Spartacus thing, I mean, Jesus too, right? I mean, king of Nazareth. The king of the Jews, the placard there. What's Pilate doing? It's a Spartacus kind of thing. He was a political rebel, claimed to be the king. And there's no king but Caesar. And you know what? I can go to Tacitus. There's some things that are said in the Roman historian Tacitus about Jesus and his early followers. I can go to Josephus. There's something said in Josephus about Jesus and his, and his followers. And I might even use Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John if I can demythologize them and get all the crazy stuff out of there. I might be able to find out something about who this Jesus was and what his mission was about. And he was a wise sage, a political rebel in the first century world. I could do that from, I guess, a modern historicist standpoint. But where do I go in Tacitus or Josephus to make a claim that, oh, by the way, that political rebel of the first century world, was God in flesh. The creator of the world, by the way, in flesh now, who lived a vicariously righteous life and then died a substitutionary death for the sins of the whole world. And by the way, when they put that king to death on the cross and then he raised from the dead, he actually made the whole world new again. And we're waiting for the culmination of that down payment on the newness of the world when he returns again in glory to judge both the living and the dead. Tacitus is going to help you on that one, right? I need revelation, the revelation of God and the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to help me understand the significance of what it is that we're actually seeing. Because eyes alone, right, empirical experiences alone, will not communicate to us in a self-evident way what it is that we're seeing. Because you know what? The truth of the matter is we could have been in the first century world and walked right past Jesus and not had a clue who he was. Not a clue. I need the revelation of God. And John's gospel steps in with aplomb, right, to help us see, hey, by the way, that figure who died on a cross and then rose from the dead was the word of God made flesh. Okay? Do we have time for one question? Mr. Stokes? Yeah. Um, counting the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And, and Jesus says, if they don't buy into the law of the prophets, then me doing something else isn't going to make That's right. Well, it's a significant claim. What are the implications of that for ministry? Because it seems like that puts the brakes on some things where 
we feel that we're relevant enough or culturally attached enough or watch the right movies or read the right books that if ultimately yeah. if we don't get to the Bible and dig in there yeah. in a dull sunny school room somewhere that we're not going to get where we want to go. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a fuddy-duddy. I, I, I teach in a seminary. I tell my students in a joking way that the reason I teach in a seminary is because I really probably couldn't do the real thing in ministry itself. You know, so I, I avoid people by dealing... You know, I'm joking about that in a way, but there's some truth to that. Um, you know, so I realize that I'm not the guy to be writing a church growth manual. I just, I'm not the guy. Those aren't my skill sets. But at the same time, I don't think Jesus is your guy either. Because I've often felt reading the gospel, I feel this way. don't invite Jesus to any church growth seminars. Just don't. You keep him at home because he's going to ruin it. He's going to ruin your time together, right? Um, and I think you're right. I mean, I think the problem in the life of the ministry or the aim for a simple approach to church, a simple approach, um, has to be built on what our creeds say, the legacy of the apostles and the prophets. That's what we have. Um, and I learned this when I was in youth ministry for years, which, which means I'm going to heaven, by the way. <laughs> but I, I learned this in, in youth ministry that um, you know, what, you, what you tend to attract and win people with if you're trying to build a church is typically what you have to continue to do to keep them and retain them. Um, and so if it's the sexy and the trendy and the hottest and the newest, well, God bless you. I, mean, that's just, I just want to go take a nap thinking about trying to keep up with that. Um, but I think if you build on the legacy of the apostles and the prophets and the Catholic tradition of the church as received in our Anglican communion through a kind of reformational theology, I mean, that, that it just, you know, people's lives get changed with that. that that's got a lot of cachet to it, too, I think. Um, so I think you're right. I think it has a lot to say. I mean, when Jesus thinks about building people deep in their faith, to produce, and this is going to sound melodramatic, but it's not from the standpoint of the compositional history of the New Testament. To produce martyrs. See, we don't think about that, but they did. To produce people who are willing to say, hey, this isn't just a part of my social identity. I'm willing to die for this. Right? That's, boy, you need the apostles and the prophets for that kind of depth. Yeah. Okay, that was fun. Um, <laughs> we will come together next week. I will finish a few more introductory remarks, but we're going to, if you want homework assignment, we're going to do John 1, 1 to 18. Okay, we'll do the prologue, all right?